This is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, building futures close to home at campuses in Morgantown, Kaiser, and Beckley. Information at wvu.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com. Welcome back to the legislature today. I'm Bob Brunner. Thanks for joining us for tonight's coverage of the 2023 legislative session. There will be two public hearings coming up in the next few days. On Monday, the House Committee on Energy and Manufacturing hosts a public hearing from 9 to 10 a.m. in the chamber on House Bill 3446. That bill clarifies the powers and duties of the State Public Service Commission as it relates to electric generating facilities. Sign-ups to speak begin at 8.30 in the chamber. Tomorrow, Friday, the House Judiciary Committee will host a public hearing in the House Chamber from 4 to 5 p.m. to discuss House Bill 3042. That bill forbids excessive government limitation on the exercise of religion. Sign-ups to speak will begin at 3.30 p.m. in the Chamber. House Bill 3042 reignites a contentious proposal that failed in 2016. Randy Yowie now reports on the debate this time around. Delegate Jonathan Pinson, a Republican from Mason County, is lead sponsor of House Bill 3042, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The law would establish a judicial test that the complainant said a state action, with compelling exceptions, would substantially burden a person's exercise of religion. He used the example of a Mennonite legally compelled to place an orange rather than a white, slow-moving vehicle sign on the back of a horse and buggy. A white reflective placard is just as effective at warning upcoming motorists of a slow-moving vehicle as a bright orange one. Again, orange is not against my uh, religion. I don't have a conviction against it, but there are religious minorities that do have a conviction against it. So the long story short, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is to protect religious minorities, to protect religious conviction. Delegate Joey Garcia, a Democrat from Marion County, is among those lawmakers saying, first, religious freedom is already guaranteed by the First Amendment, and second, there's a concern that the bill would nullify anti-discrimination protections enacted by West Virginia cities. It could strike down any law that we already have on the books based on somebody saying that it interferes with their religion, but it's in not necessarily religious activities. It's in the daily things that we do. It's whether somebody can get a job, whether somebody can uh, get housing. And so there's a lot of situations where there may be discrimination. And I think that this is a type of bill that can be used to allow a group, a person to discriminate against someone else and use religion as an excuse for that. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act was advanced by the Judiciary Committee to the House floor. For the legislature today, I'm Randy Yowie. 
Drug and alcohol treatment facilities and services will be limited in certain counties. If House Bill 3337 is passed by the Senate, the bill aims to prohibit the development of licensed substance abuse treatment beds in any county that already has more than 250 licensed beds. Delegate Mike Pushkin, a Democrat from Kanawha County, spoke in opposition to the bill saying he has reservations about placing a number on how many people could receive help in a certain county. Pushkin adds that putting a cap on licensure may increase the value of the bed, leading some entities to purchase licenses in each of West Virginia's 55 counties. Scott Heckard, a Republican from Wood County, spoke in favor of the bill claiming it would help his county not become overrun from other counties that don't want the responsibility of recovery patients. The bill passed the House of Delegates by a vote of 77 to 21. It now heads to the Senate for its consideration. The Senate passed three bills Thursday related to elections in the state. Chris Schulz has that story. All three bills came to the Senate from the Secretary of State's office. Senate Bill 620 makes just four changes to state code that would increase the maximum number of registered voters per precinct, as well as the distance between polling places. Senator Charles Trump, a Republican from Morgan County, is the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee and the bill's lead sponsor. He stated the bill increases the maximum number of voters in an urban precinct from 1,500 to 2,500 voters and allows for greater consolidation of precincts. There's also authority under this bill for counties, county governments, county commissions to consolidate precincts, uh, but there are limitations on uh, the geographical distance. The consolidated precinct cannot contain more than 5,000 total. That's up from 3,000 registered voters. And uh, under existing law, there's a one-mile radius limit. This would expand that to uh, five miles. And so it's all permissive, uh, be up to the county commissions to decide. During discussion of the bill in the Senate Judiciary Committee this past Friday, Senator Mike Caputo, a Democrat from Marion County, expressed concern that the consolidation of polling places the bill allows would ultimately create undue burdens on voters. The bill passed on a vote of 27 to 7. All three Democratic senators were joined by Republican senators Jason Barrett of Berkeley, Laura Chapman of Ohio, Patrick Martin of Lewis, and Ben Queen of Harrison in voting against the bill. The Senate also passed Senate Bill 631, which would allow the state to use federal money from the Help America Vote Act in federal elections. Also known as HAVA, Trump said the bill was passed by Congress after the 2000 presidential election to help facilitate vote counting in states. As the technology of voting machines has become more advanced, uh, they've become more expensive. And so in West Virginia, the uh, voting machines that are used by the 55 counties uh, are purchased with combinations of county monies, uh, and federal monies, and this will allow the Secretary of State to utilize federal monies that come into the Secretary of State's possession for that purpose. Senate Bill 631 also extends the deadline for when county clerks can accept voter registrations on the final day by a few hours, from close of business to midnight. Senate Bill 644, which aims to clarify the procedure for contested elections, also passed. In short, what this bill does is it moves, it moves to the courts.
the place where election contests occur. And so if there is an election contest from a municipal election, the current law is that it's decided by first by the mayor and the council. Uh, if there, I think the law provides now that uh, contests of, the, of a, an election involving uh, the county, county and district contests, the uh, current law is that they're decided uh, in the county court. Uh, that's right. This moves all that to circuit court. All three bills now go to the House of Delegates for their consideration. For the legislature today, I'm Chris Schultz. The Senate took up two bills today to address issues around diabetes in the state. Senate Bill 195 would allow a licensed health care provider to prescribe ready-to-use glucagon rescue therapy in a school or in a school district's name to treat severe hypoglycemic episodes. Senate Bill 577 would limit the cost sharing for a covered prescription of insulin to a total of $35 for a 30-day supply and $100 for a 30-day supply for covered diabetic devices. Senator Mike Maroney, a Republican from Marshall County, says the bill would apply to West Virginians that currently have private health insurance. Our bill applies to private insurance, okay? So the 20% of West Virginians that have commercial insurance, uh, roughly. Uh, that's what this bill applies to. Uh, Medicare already has it. PEIA has similar ranges. I can't answer Medicaid. Maroney says a similar bill passed the Senate last year but ultimately failed to complete legislative action. Both bills passed and now head to the House of Delegates for its consideration. Heavy rainfall last week prompted Governor Jim Justice to declare a state of emergency for all 55 counties in West Virginia. In PACS in Fayette County, an infant child died when the vehicle he was in was swept away by floodwaters. In Duval in Lincoln County, about 170 students were forced to spend the night at school after the Mud River broke from its banks. And about 40 homes were damaged in Milton in Cabell County. Flooding is common in West Virginia, and Caroline McGregor brings us this perspective on the problem to look at what needs to be done. Despite state and federal flood protection programs and projects, flooding has become West Virginia's most widespread natural disaster. We lived here for 35, 40 years, and we never dreamed this would happen. I don't want to leave. It's, uh, it's home. In 2016, the uh, state recorded one of the deadliest floods on record. Heavy rainfall has destroyed communities and lives. Flooding is now affecting all 55 counties and 32 major watersheds within the state. In July, Governor Jim Justice declared a state of emergency in McDowell County following excessive rainfall that left millions of dollars in damage to buildings, bridges and roads. Just one month later, volunteer firefighter Clayton Young and his wife who live in the small town of Cedar Grove were awakened to discover Kelly's Creek, right across the road from their home, had spilled its banks and water was rapidly creeping toward their front doorstep. It started at, say, I think around 1 or 1.30. The chief and I responded in personal vehicles because we're close and we couldn't find anything. It was maybe a slight drizzle, maybe just starting to sprinkle. Clayton said he returned home to get some sleep before being awakened to an urgent phone call from the fire chief. And of course, once I did answer, he said, you you got to get up. He said, the, the creek is over the road. When he looked out of his front door, the water was already two feet high. 
Too late to try to leave, Clayton communicated with the chief on the radio while keeping an eye on the water level. When it reached the top of the porch, he and his wife moved what they could to the upper level of the house. My wife had recently had surgery and was unable to walk, so uh, when it got to the top step, that's when we grabbed the computer and her and we made our, ourselves up to the second floor. The couple turned down an offer of a water rescue, instead deciding to sit tight and wait it out. The water receded within three hours, but the front yard was left with a huge sandbar filled with debris and firewood. The Youngs had a nasty surprise when their insurance company refused to cover all the damage. It took 15000 to put a new furnace in here, you know, new furnace and ductwork, and they depreciated 50%, so it cost me fifteen. they deduct $7,500. So. If Cedar Grove meets the threshold for FEMA monies, Clayton hopes money will be available to him to replace personal items not covered by his insurance. He also hopes the town can get money to rebuild damaged infrastructure and Dredge Creek still lined with debris and fallen trees. Senator Glenn Jeffries, a Republican from Putnam County, says the State Resiliency Office was formed to address disasters like the flooding in August along Upper Kanawha tributaries. In September, the Joint Legislative Committee on Flooding discussed steps to stem the effects of flooding within the state. We found out in 2016 with the, the flooding that happened, it was about programming, having programs in place to be able to address the flooding. Jeffries said the Joint Legislative Committee on Flooding is helping. He says the state is also working with Pew Charitable Trust on research to determine specific areas of focus. Jeffries advises homeowners without insurance or financial aid to reach out locally first. Reports show that climate change is made worse by burning fossil fuels. But Jeffries said West Virginia will always be a coal-producing state. Even though that we are diversifying our state, and I do acknowledge that fossil fuel, the usage of it is being reduced, but we still have to mine the coal. We need the steel. We have to have the coal for the steel. And we have to have the coal to be able to operate um, our base load power plants. Kanawha County Commission President Kent Carper said disaster relief for West Virginia means relying less on government and communities more on each other. We're experiencing and have experienced some very unusual severe weather patterns. Some people blame this or that on it, but the fact of the matter is we have to put up with it. Carper believes Congress's flood mitigation program is underfunded. It's just about non-existent now. The flood insurance is becoming so unaffordable people won't take it. FEMA requires certain thresholds to be met before handing out disaster aid to states. Carper says there's too much government red tape. I don't think the federal government understands their thresholds. They base it upon population, they, they base it upon amount of damage, and they distinguish between roads and things that have been paid for with federal dollars. I mean, it's, it's just what you'd expect out of the federal government. There's more uh, stipulations, more red tape, and frankly, their rules don't make any sense to me. Carper said Governor Justice and the state have done a good job with helping in recovery efforts. You know, you see someone flood, and your heart goes out to them, you're like, man, those poor people, you know. But until you've been involved in it, you can't imagine what it entails, you know. Reporting for the legislature today, I'm Caroline McGregor in Charleston. To discuss what the legislature can do about it, Caroline speaks with Delegate Clay Riley, a Republican from Harrison County and co-chair of the Joint Legislative Oversight Commission on State Water Resources, and Senator Chandler Swope, a Republican from Mercer County and co-chairman of the Joint Legislative Committee on Flooding.
Thank you, Bob, and thank you to both of my guests for joining me today. I know you've both got a really busy schedule, and uh, you know we're happy to have you here to talk about this important topic. Uh, Senator Swipe, I'll, I'll start with you, if you don't mind. Um, last Friday, you introduced a bill, um, 677, Senate Bill 677. The bill essentially clarifies the roles and responsibilities of the state resiliency officer. Um, and it ensures that the state is better prepared for to address flooding moving forward. If you could, would you just you know tell me a little bit about how deeply this bill goes into um, you know involving the state in flood control measures? Okay, sure, certainly. Um, the genesis of this whole program started about 2019, when we had uh, been three years since the 2016 flood. We had $300 million of FEMA and HUD money and virtually none of it had been spent because the state wasn't prepared with a structure to respond to, to natural disasters. And so the governor created a flooding committee to, to put legislative oversight over the progress of that function. And he appointed, he made it a joint committee with representation from the Senate and from, from the House. Uh, Dean Jeffries was co-chair of the flooding committee and I was co-chair uh, from, from the House and I was co-chair from the Senate. And so that created a follow-up or, or legislative oversight of the recovery from the 2016 flood. Uh, it took some time to, to respond to that because we didn't have state agencies. There are multiple state agencies and multiple federal agencies that have to cooperate together. Uh, in order to execute, follow all the rules and all that. Well, over the last three years, we were able to get significant progress done on that and uh, we're, we're not 100% complete, but nearly completed. Well, uh, two years ago, the governor uh, created the Resilience Committee out of the needs of the FUD Committee and their mission was to create a, an administrative program, both at the state and federal level, they would have the right people in place with the right knowledge and right responsibilities to be able to respond more quickly to the next flood or, or natural disaster of any kind. And so the, the Resilience Committee was created, but we didn't have an organizational structure for that. We created a committee. Uh, we had a small amount of funding where we could hire a few people and try to put together a plan. And the Resilience Committee has a very high level board of directors on this behalf of the state, which are mostly cabinet level people. Uh, and so we began that mission of trying to define a standard operating procedures, if you will. Uh, but there was no legislative organizational structure for how that mission would be executed. And the, the Pew Institute or Pew Charitable Trust helped a lot in creating they already knew a lot of the language that we would need to create that organizational structure. So Senate Bill 677 provided that organizational structure with divine the responsibilities and uh, the resources. And so it put an organizational structure in place that we can build this mission of responding more promptly and, and more reliably to the next natural disaster. Okay. Um Delegate Riley, just um, a quick question for you. As co-chair of the Joint Legislative Oversight Commission on State Water Resources, explain your role in <coughs> flood mitigation efforts, if you would, please. Uh, thank you, Caroline. Yes, so I am co-chair with Senator Randy Smith of the State Water Resources Commission. And so we look at water from a holistic perspective. So not only the 
the storm water and the amount of precipitation that comes in, but also water withdrawals, water recharge. So if it's anything related to the natural water resource uh, that's within the purview of the State Water Resources Commission. So we've done a number of interim studies and interim hearings on stormwater from MS4. Uh, we've had water quality type uh, interim hearings, as well as understanding, you know, in concert with the flooding committee of the impacts of the stormwater and the some of the increased rainfall that we've seen over the past couple years. Okay, and I believe that you have actually, have you actually introduced the bill, House Bill 2955? Yes, House Bill 2955. So what House Bill 2955 does is currently encode municipalities and counties are able to handle stormwater through a stormwater utility. This bill allows them to work collectively together to form a joint board, so it's, gov it's a government efficiency board. You know, watersheds don't follow city boundaries, they don't follow county right. boundaries, so it gives them a, a, an avenue to be able to work together so we most efficiently can solve the stormwater problem and this fl flooding problem. So if there's, you know, a water a a watershed that's coming into a city from outside in the county area that has some obstructions that's causing some floodings, it allows them to work together to be able to solve that more efficiently. So that's what that bill does. Okay. Where do we stand with the state flood protection plan? I believe it's, you know, it was, it's quite old. Has it been updated? You know, I, I believe it's about 21 years old, the state flood protection plan, and that's a question for both of you. Yes, the resiliency officer, uh, Bob Martin and his staff, over the last six months or so have updated that flood plan, which was, I think, last looked at in 2004. And that uh, process has been completed. They've gone through it and updated. Uh, they didn't build any new plans that way. They just updated the old plan to give us a platform which gives us guidance on how to structure uh, disaster recovery from. So that's been done. And that's one of the documents that we're going to work with to try to complete our mission of being prepared for the next uh, natural disaster. I know during the interims uh, in early January, Robert Martin, State Res Resiliency Officer, he mentioned a lot of different projects going on. But can you, both of you, tell me where can we, what can we do to mitigate flooding in the state? What are real concrete plans moving forward, you know, that are out there to, you know, to help people in the flood, flood plains, for example? So I think there's a couple different things. You know, obviously some structures have been built within floodplains over the past number of years, uh, obstructions and, and clearing of debris. So if you have debris that gets caught in the on the banks, making sure that that gets cleared off so that the water can flow in the floodplain as, it, as it's designed. So I think when we look at that and we look at mitigation projects, making sure we use some, some natural stream design to be able to accommodate the peak flows that we see. West Virginia is kind of unique that we have really steep hills in these valleys that cause really intense rains to get quickly down the hill to the rivers and the creeks that cause them to flood. So making sure that the by, you know the overpasses are high enough, make sure that they're clear of debris, and making sure that we can mitigate those. Those are some concrete mitigation strategies. Okay, and and you talked a bit about you know trying to make or, or get local governments to work together on flood protection and projects. Can you you know expand a bit on that as well, part of your bill perhaps? Well, yes, uh, there are about eight or ten government entities in the state that all have roles to play and local governments have a role to play just like the state level uh, entities are and all those will be uh, integrated into a flood uh, resiliency recovery plan 
so that was the local entities like cities and counties will only be one uh, or part of the the overall plan that can be all integrated together. The cities and counties can't do it by themselves, and the right. state government can't either. And I know it's it's you know it's a terribly complex process for you know, to obtain a disaster declaration um, for counties who are seeking financial assistance. Um, you know, FEMA seems to short the state a little bit with all of the thresholds involved. And um, I believe G. McCabe mentioned um, that, you know, he was trying to get FEMA to review its 72-hour policy. You know, what would you say to homeowners who are struggling? You know, we, we just heard from one homeowner earlier on the program um, whose his home insurance didn't cover you know losses in the Cedar Grove area um, what would you say to homeowners where should they look if FEMA's not helping them and their their own insurance companies aren't helping them well flood insurance is actually less expensive and more available than you might think so we don't have to recreate the flood insurance program but I would suggest that people should investigate the flood insurance program and take advantage of it. I've heard some data that uh, flood recovery damages are, are often average less than $30,000 uh, in total for each individual uh, homeowner. So uh, they could look into that as the first thing to do. The, the biggest problem is that they haven't got the flood insurance. Okay. Well, we're almost out of time. Is there anything else you'd like to say briefly, quickly? Um, the only thing I'd add, I think that this legislature has really taken a proactive approach to solving this problem. All right. Well, thank you both very much for joining us today and I uh, hope to talk to you more in the future about this subject. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for that, Caroline. Tune in to the legislature today, Monday through Friday at 6. We'll have more news and interviews from the 2023 legislative session. And remember, West Virginia Public Broadcasting is covering the session daily on our radio news program, West Virginia Morning, and on our news site at wvpublic.org. We also broadcast the daily floor sessions of both the House and Senate on the West Virginia channel, and we stream those for you on YouTube as well. I'm Bob Brunner. Thanks for joining us, and have a good evening. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, building futures close to home at campuses in Morgantown, Kaiser, and Beckley. Information at wvu.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra freedom to grow. More information at segra.com.